I think a lot of times people build goals around the what, not the why, right? So they focus a lot on what they want, what they want to see, what they want to have, what they want to do, which is really important. But that really should be a measurement of have you done the why? And oftentimes, if you're missing the why, you're going to miss the what. (laughs) If what you want is to make a lot of money, sure. But the money will come as a reward to what why, which has to be grounded in something else. Welcome to the Rising Leader Podcast, bringing forth the new wave of rising leadership and helping leaders find purpose, connection, and results. This is your host, founder of Alluviance, Alex Kremer. Rides, welcome back to the Rising Leader Podcast. I am so stoked. This conversation has been a long time coming here for, I don't know, I feel like maybe a year, maybe a little less than a year or something along those lines. But I am joined by my guy, Mr. Trey Scott. Trey, first off, like, what's up, man? It's good to see you. How are you? <laughs> we love a good friend meetup here, huh? Exactly, exactly. Well, man, Trey, you're, you're someone whose journey I think is uh, not only really powerful and also you're doing some pretty unique and authentic stuff. We share some background. So I'll provide a little bit of introduction for you just to set the frame for this. So Trey is a guy who's a fellow New Yorker here living in the city. I actually met Trey, I think it was about 10 years ago, something along those lines, maybe a little bit less than 10 years ago. We both started at Microsoft. I think you were about a year or so after I had initially joined Microsoft. I started in the government sector. You started in the education sector. And you're one of those people that when you talk to, you're like, "Mm, that guy kind of knows his shit (laughs) without ever having having been there for too long. I was like, okay, he's going to be doing big things. And, you know, I was there for about four and a half years, you just made the announcement that you're leaving for your next journey, which I'm excited to dive into. I would say that you probably had the quickest rise in terms of leadership at Microsoft than I've really seen from anybody who joined right out of college, right? And you graduated from Duke University. I'm excited to dive into that. And also, we got dinner probably four or so months ago. And I was like, ooh, he's bringing some fire in terms of how he leads his team, how he's thinking about hitting the goal. So it's just a good mind right there. And the last thing I'll say, you are a producer of a Broadway show. Like That's just such a badass fact about you. You're an investor into different types of tech companies, you know, you're the chairman of the board for Duke Engage. It's just like, man, as I read your resume, I'm like, he's doing some pretty badass stuff here, man. So I'm excited to just learn what makes you, you, man, and dive in. Wow. I feel like whenever I'm down, I just need to call you, honestly, because this, you know, I'm like, oh, oh, this sounds way better coming out of your mouth, actually, than anything I could have ever said. Thank you, friend. I appreciate you. And it's crazy how time flies by. I remember us first meeting each other back at Microsoft. You were super, super helpful to me in terms of onboarding into the company, finding actual friends and peers in the company as well. And it's been good to get to know you over the years and see all the work that you have done and the amazing success you've had. So congratulations on that as well. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Yeah, it's funny, too, how we got reconnected. I think I was going to get dinner with a friend in New York City, somewhere in the West Village. And I walked by, you and I was like, I think I know that guy. <laughs> and I was like, hey. And you're like, what, dude, what's up? So that was so good. Oh, my God. The people you stumbled City into. of 8 million people. And somehow you still run into folks that you've known years ago. And what we probably should say, too, is that we met in D.C., so not even in New York City. It's a bit wild to think about the fact that you run into each other at the same restaurant six years later in a whole different city. You know, everything happens for a reason. So I'm glad it did. Yeah. Let's go back. 
that's then lead to where you are now and then let's lead to where you're going. Because even as I not just hear about what you're talking about, I also receive your energy. I'm like, ooh, I want to do more cool shit like that. You know, when we started at Microsoft, you had just graduated from Duke. Over the six, seven, maybe eight years that you've been there, you've moved up to leading a very large and very profitable and very important part of the business. Walk me through that journey. How did you kind of go from being that individual contributor to now where you're at today? Sure. I wish it was a perfect blueprint, but I think thematically, what it became about was the problem solving, right? To your point, I graduated from Duke University as a public policy major and really focused a lot on national security back in school and a bunch of other policies that were the complex, nuanced type of work. And I think no matter what, I've always been really, really focused on problem solving. And I had an artistic background growing up, but a lot of that still was grounded in how do we have ambitious goals and work our way to seeing them through. Whether that was on stage or in a policy perspective, we should really be thinking of a North Star and trying to go after that. Microsoft became the perfect playground for myself to have a lot of problems. Not because of the organization itself inherently, but the breadth of a company that Microsoft is. The amount of jobs that you could have at a company that size, the amount of different clients you can work with, the interesting projects that you could actually touch and outcomes you could be working on with those clients is infinite at the end of the day. And I think I sort of leaned into that reality. And frankly, Microsoft enabled me to do so. To your point, I started in the education sector later moved into financial services, learned a lot from my clients there too, because it was a big inflection point for financial services. Obviously, lots of transformation happening in banking and the user experience happening there. But even more so, there's sort of this explosion of the what I call unsexy parts of financial services, insurance and other places where the average consumer isn't necessarily thinking about, but are massive businesses that are really important to the world, which is a great way to learn a shit ton. (laughs) Because my clients were in learning mode. They're still trying to figure it out. They're wondering, how do we do this better? We've always done it this way. How can we do it in the future? Hey, Microsoft, can you help us? You have a hungry kid who's like, yeah, I'll figure it out. And of course, wasn't alone. While I was sort of young out of college learning, I'm surrounded by experts who've been doing this for decades. So when you have this incubation of myself and no regard for (laughs) legacy thinking, and then a whole bunch of people who have seen this cycle of innovation happen before, you get this perfect mix of why not? And that sort of became the theme going forward. Why not? Why not? Why not? And so for financial services, I spent a little time worldwide after that and focusing on go-to-market with some of our new products that we were launching. And then came back to the business side where then I manage a team where we focus on partnerships and building out revenue-generating partnerships with our clients. So that was probably the most creative of all my jobs simply because of how hard the problems we were trying to solve and at the scale we were solving them at. So multi-hundred million dollar deals, doing over a billion dollars in revenue for our team. You have a highly leveraged team. It was fantastic. I always tell people I didn't go to business school, but I think I went to something just as good, which is working at the number one or number two largest tech companies in the world. Not only did it not cost me $250,000, they actually paid me to do a whole bunch of learning and a whole bunch of failing and a whole bunch of networking and having a good time. I recently announced this week that I'll be walking away from that, but it's been a wild eight years. I mean, that's kind of nuts, right? Like it's kind of wild. 
Yes, it is very wild. And to see the different roles you've played there. You speak really well to all something that I resonate on why I joined Microsoft right out of college as well is because was I attracted to the sexy software or to the cloud, whatever we were going to be selling there? Not really. What I was attracted to, though, was, man, there's an infinite amount of problems that we could be solving here. When you are at one of these large tech companies, you're not necessarily niche. You go in there and you say, what problems do you have? Because we probably solve for it or work with partners who solve for it in some type of capacity. And I love what you say of even when you were in the financial industry and the changes and the evolution that you saw that sector go through, that it's continuing to go through, you were at the front, not only teaching, but determining what that path was that organizations were taking. That's right. And I think also, too, what we forget about is that you and I had front row seats to what also was the new rise of Microsoft. And of course, under Satya Nadella leadership and many others, but especially him being not just the CEO of the company, but really the ethos of the new version of Microsoft. You might have been, I think, one or two years after him coming in. I think I was three years or two years. So in the tenure of his time, still relatively early in that two-year mark, even that in itself meant that not only were we helping our clients innovate, we as a company were figuring it out, right? And learning and redoing it and messing it up and then fixing it and then doing it better and then going back. I think in general, it meant that we were surrounded by learnings and opportunities to learn. As long as you're open to that, you can figure that out. And so I think my success at the company has been this aggressive desire to learn that was rewarded with opportunity. You mix those things together, you can actually see some success with some clients. Let's talk about Satya Nadella real quick because he really did come in and he took Microsoft to a whole new path. And not only from a revenue perspective and from an ethos perspective, I love how you say that word, from a this is how a leader is. He brought a certain level of empathy that I think not many people knew how to embody that and also still get shit done you know, drive towards results. And I even still remember he shared on an all hands one time about an interview question. This is weird that I'm just remembering this. He said, the one question he got stumped with that caused him not to get a job, Satya Nadella, was somebody said, when you see a crying baby alone and in the street, what do you do? And what he said, he's like, well, you call the cops and you say, there's a baby. We need to figure this out. The interview is like, no, you go up and you pick up that baby and you make sure it's okay. So I was like, wow, that's such a great example of leading with empathy and love. I just remember would be listening to him be like, man, I trust this guy. He's coming from a good spot. Without a doubt, it's already been said. I completely believe that he will be known as one of the greatest CEOs in the world of a major company. I think in many ways, too, Satyo is a good example of what power looks like, too. When you think about having really every resource you could ever want from financial resources and capital to labor to influence to scale, when you have all of that at your disposal, what do you do with it? How do you operate and exist in the world in that way? And I think he continues to exhibit what it means to have power and to use that effectively. It never means perfection, but it does mean intention. I think at the end of the day, he really taught us all a lot and continues to teach everyone, at least for myself, I'll speak for me, what does it mean to be intentional? And look our clients in the eyes or look our friends and coworkers in the eyes and be intentional about their success, intentional about their growth, intentional about their present state, how they show up, who they show up as. And I think at the end of the day, that is the responsibility, especially of leadership. But change as I moved into leadership in the company and in my life, it changed the way, not only to your point that I look at empathy, but that I also look at the responsibility of a leader. And that doesn't always mean having to be the one responsible for people's feelings or emotions. 
but it means looking someone in the eye and knowing that they are a person, <laughs> that we are people and it's messy. And sometimes that's great. And sometimes it gets in the way of our perfect outcome. And we've got to deal with all of that. There's definitely the fine balance as a leader of you can't just be looking at people as you're helping me drive revenue or you're a tool to be used in this greater mechanism. You are a human being. You have feelings. You have emotions. You have a family, most likely. You have whatever responsibilities. And I do think the leader's job is to help to inspire that person to become not just the greatest version of themselves, but to be part of something bigger than just themselves. We've probably both led people. They just wanted to make a lot of money so they could just live their good life. And that's cool. And if you want to be the person, more power to you. But I also know that it can be fleeting at times. But when we can get people who we are leading to all be excited about doing something and working towards something with other people, there's nothing that can really replace that feeling right there. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of times people build goals around the what, not the why, right? So they focus a lot on what they want what they want to see, what they want to have, what they want to do, which is really important. But that really should be a measurement of have you done the why? And oftentimes, if you're missing the why, you're going to miss the what. (laughs) If what you want is to make a lot of money, sure. But the money will come as a reward to what why, which has to be grounded in something else. So maybe the why is, is I want to solve the hardest, most complex problems. For a while, that was my why at the company what it resulted in was actually revenue. Because the way we enable that, clients were willing to pay for it, creating value, therefore creating a reward system in which my team and myself saw that reward. But if you focus on the what and not the why, you almost get lost in the thick of things. So when it becomes really hard, or you don't know which way is up, or you're a little bit uncertain, you don't have actually the North Star or the compass to get you out of it because it's actually grounded in the wrong thing, right? You're chasing the wrong thing. And so whenever I talk to people, especially as a leader, whether I'm trying to understand them or mentorship or just simply a simple conversation, I try to really get to the why. Why do you do what you do? It doesn't have to be super philosophical. It doesn't have to actually be about anything. It could actually just be, uh, this is what entertains me. For me, that's what it was. In order to stay intellectually stimulated, I need to be working on hard problems. It's not that complex. And it's not even that sexy, but it's very clear. I also know then when I'm in situations that aren't meeting that why, right? When I'm in a job that just doesn't feel like it's ambitious enough or that I'm learning or these problems don't matter. (laughs) And that's nothing wrong with that job. That just means it's not aligned to my why. All right. I want to go back to something you said early that I was like, oh, that's good right there. Your why was to solve the hardest and most complex problems. That was your why. Why was that your why? Why does that get you excited? Because I think the underlying reason to what you're saying, it could be the thing that's allowed you to have the progression that you've had and the thing that's driving you. So why is that what you want to do? The hardest and most complex problems? You know, it's a good question. (laughs) Sometimes I wonder, am I just a masochist? And that's why I just, (laughs) oh, what would be really hard and difficult? (laughs) I deeply believe that I have been blessed to be put into situations to be able to navigate hard, complex problems with teams of people. And that's everything from my demeanor. I can buckle down and really focus on a problem and get really energized going after that. I think some of that just comes from, as a kid, what interests me were the things that were not complete and asking why. That's, again, that question of why not. I think an element of that, though, also was the environment that I was in. When I was thinking through this why, at the time, 
I'm working at one of the biggest companies in the world with all the resources you could ever imagine, as we talked about. Why aren't we chasing the biggest problems? Why aren't we looking at the hardest things? Why aren't we actually trying to do the thing that's not done yet? And I'm not confused. I am not a doctor. I am not fixing the planet. (laughs) There are plenty of other people working on why that I think have much more systematic impacts. But in the moment that I was in, where I was at, the only thing I could think about in terms of what would get me out of bed right here, right now, is to be able to leverage the fact that I work at a company that can do almost anything it wants. I started actually treating whatever job I was in, like I worked at a startup with the world's biggest insurance plan. Now, I don't know if Microsoft senior leadership loves that kind of phrasing, but that's just the mindset. Well, I was pretty sure I was not going to break Microsoft. So as long as I stay somewhat reasonable in terms of my goals, well, you can probably stretch them pretty far. Remaining compliant and all the great things you can do to make sure you don't go to jail. But I think other than that, oh, the world's your oyster. You should be going after it. And I think that mentality then started seeping into the other parts of my world. As an investor, why not? As just a person, a lot of people would say, well, you can't really do all of that, right? You can't have a corporate job and do artistic work and be an investor and do nonprofit stuff. Pick a lane. What's the brand? I'm thinking, this is the brand. The brand are, where are the problems? And I'm going to go run to the problems. So my leaving Microsoft is even grounded in that. It's grounded in the fact that I've got some other problems I want to go solve. And I've got some more resources I got to go get. And I'm ready to take them and go work on something else. And in a few years, if I solve those problems, I'm going to go find some other ones. And I just have a deep belief that not only am I in the right position to do so, I feel excited when I'm doing that. It doesn't always mean that I'm always happy, but it does mean that most days I don't want to be anywhere else. And I was really fortunate to be able to do a lot of that at Microsoft. And now it's just time for me to do it in a different industry. This episode is brought to you by Alluvians. Alluvians is helping sales professionals and sales leaders master the craft of sales by transforming the inner game. Last year, we threw over four retreats and helped over 150 tech sales professionals, leaders, and founders. And next, we got it going on May 3rd through 5th in the beautiful Austin, Texas area. So make sure you apply to alluvians.co to check it out for more. You said a couple of things that I want to double click into. First off, you said, sure, there's other people who are changing the world in a much different type of way and more impactful way than, than I am. The doctors, and you name a few, like, yes, they are. But you're just playing a different role within impacting that world. If you weren't able to lead your team effectively to identify and make the partnerships official with some of these companies, whether it be the engineers, the doctors, you name it, who are actually providing the services and changing it, they wouldn't have the opportunity to. Your role's just different within it. That's a great point. The second part is you almost feel like you have a responsibility. At least I feel this way. So maybe I'm projecting a little bit here. But I feel like, man, I've been given great opportunities within my life. I'm so thankful for how I was raised. I'm so thankful that I got the opportunity to work at Microsoft and now do this bot. Thank you. I feel blessed. I have a responsibility to do something with that. Me getting the opportunity to speak with you right now, me having the intelligence or the ability to connect with people to do something. Man, if I actually had this God-given ability and also that I've worked on, I need to do something with that. And I feel inspired to do that. The last thing you said was, sure, you don't feel happy all the time. No, absolutely not. But I've been studying this concept a lot lately. And one of my coaches, a guy named Rob Renahan, challenged me on this recently. He said, Alex, you're not going to be either happy or sad all the time. But what you can feel all the time 
is joy. You can feel joy all the time. I was like, that is hard for me to understand because I definitely don't feel joy all the time. What about the times when I'm really struggling? And he said, as long as your why is solving the hardest problems, because that's what inspires you. As you're doing that, as you're going through the mud, as you're going through the hard times, there can be joy in that. You can still be struggling, but be joyful in the struggle and know that it's actually guiding. And that's what I really hear and feel from you, to be honest. I feel it more than I hear it is just like this joy of let's do hard, crazy shit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. It's being able to ground yourself in being present of I'm here right now and I'm here to do this thing. Ironically, it's not actually thinking of how big of an impact you're going to have or you want to have and you want to focus on. When I daydream, I actually don't daydream about that. I daydream. I daydream about sort of local people that we touch and focus on and making their dreams happen. I think I'm a little bit of a different person in that I don't daydream about being the quarterback on the field. I dream about being the coach or the general manager. I want to be there at the big game watching my folks score. And that is the dream. For myself, the joy comes not necessarily in the day-to-day feelings of myself, but rather what are we bringing to the table? What are we having other people see and feel? And how are we changing that? And also too, that doesn't always mean to your point that I'm super happy in the moment. It also might mean I'm just really honest. Alex, I feel like shit. Or Alex, this is pissing me off. I don't actually like this. That authenticity, I think people resonate with. It's a word that's often overused right now. And everyone wants to focus, be authentic, be authentic. But I think at the end of the day, I'm going to mess up the quote, but people always talk about acting, for example, that good acting is really hard to do, but very easy to spot bad acting. (laughs) It's very true. Well, you don't have to be a really good actor to know what shitty acting looks like. And you don't actually have to be presenting yourself super vulnerable to know when someone's bullshitting you, right? And so at the end of the day, if you are living in your alignment and you talked about your responsibility, I'm also a very duty-driven person. So if I'm living in my alignment, I think that people are going to perceive that and receive that. And that's the goal. I want to be perceived and received in the real self that I am. That means constantly seeking alignment and being really honest with myself around, you know, I think your ego is just real present, buddy. You're being a little bit of an asshole. (laughs) And you've got to call yourself out on that because if you don't, you're going to lose your leadership skills. So people aren't going to follow you. They just won't. Not because they hate you, not because they don't respect you. Sometimes the feeling that they get because their body's seeking alignment and they think that's just off. I can't follow that guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what you're speaking to is you use the word duty. I would also use the word devotion. I'm devoted to my purpose, even what I'm doing with the Rising Leader Podcast, to bringing forth a new wave of rising leadership to help people feel greater sense of purpose, connection, and also drive incredible results. I feel a, not a duty, but a devotion to that. So often people view devotion as something, well, I give up myself for this, right? Well, I lose you for that. I will sacrifice myself. Actually, it's I'm so devoted to this that therefore I'm going to be so me and so embodied with me and my sovereignty and my uniqueness because when I am more devoted to being me, my devotion towards what I'm trying to bring to this world is going to be even more incongruous. Completely. Can I actually say one thing too that was on my mind? I feel like you and I also speak a very similar language of focusing on the why, what's the North Star? And oftentimes people criticize this. It feels soft and intangible and not real and not useful. And yeah, I hear you. Sure, sure. I get it. I get it. A lot of people talk about it. But the number one thing when I'm actually mentoring people or 
talking to people about job work or just trying to, again, understand how they take and where they want to go. The number one thing that stumps people, number one, is when I ask them questions about themselves, reflective questions. It's never about the business. It's never about the external stuff. People can land that. You know why? Because people can study that. People expect it coming. But if you ask someone, very easy question, tell me not one weakness, three. One you've planned, three you got to think. Tell me the top five things that you just simply hate in a job. Like, I mean, hate, hate. Or five things that you think, if I did these five things every day, I'd work this job for 40 years. Those are the kind of questions that they're not that hard. They're actually all about you. There is no right or wrong answer. It's your answer. But most people actually can't answer it. And so what I argue for folks who often say, yeah, I hear you about the why, I've heard this before, is have you done the work? Now, if you've done the work, if you figured out the why, if you're able to articulate it, if you've written it down, you believe it, it's true to you, and you still think it's bullshit, call me. I want to know. I want to know who does that exercise and thinks, why'd I do that? Oh my God, so true. I mean, I think that's the biggest difference. Are you talking about it or are you living it? And you look around, your friends are also not, <laughs> right? But if you are living it, your friends are. It's hard to find people who are committed to it. There's people who think about it, who want to do it, who talk about doing it, but people who are actually living it, studying it, putting themselves in challenging positions to be faced with it and forced to look inward. What do you do to ask yourself? Like, those are powerful questions, right? And they're self-reflective questions and it requires a certain level of like, have I thought about this before? Am I continually working myself? What are some of the things that you are doing or have done that have supported you to know yourself better? I do a couple things each year. I focus on really writing these things down because thinking them are one thing, seeing them on paper is another. And I'm just a big believer in that, which is crazy because I've always worked at tech companies. <laughs> I think pen and paper matters. The other thing that I do is I call it the friend interview, which is find your closest friends and interview them on how they see you show up in the world. See if how they see you, your closest people, the people who won't lie to you, but also who are in your corner at the end of the day. Are they articulating the you that you perceive yourself to be? Again, that's the alignment piece. And if you're hearing things, good, bad, or ugly, that feel incongruent with how you think you are showing up, that means somewhere there's a disconnect. Because those would be perfect, right? Sometimes, you know, your friends are going to be really nice and say really nice things about you. But even though your humble self doesn't want to admit it, hopefully those are things that you aren't shocked at <laughs> or that you appreciate. But if your friends are saying things that just seem left field, you need to do some work because it's not on them. It's on you to figure out where am I not doing the work? Am I not actually doing enough gut check? Am I not showing up the way I want to show up? Or am I showing up even more than I thought and I'm overcorrecting? So actually, it's my insecurities that are driving me, not a need that I need to be doing. So the friend interview is really important. And it's simple questions. Alex, what do you think is my greatest skill? Or when you're really mad at me and frustrated, why? I can tell you mine. I'm stubborn. I am. I mean, if you met me, I'm a, a black kid from the South. Like, my whole family's stubborn. I need to hear that, right? Because I think, oh, no, no, no. But I double down on things sometimes that I just don't need to. And you've got to know that. And it won't mean that I self-reflect my way to it. Sometimes you have to actually hear it from other people. And in systems, we have this formula. You have sometimes a 360 connect or your teams evaluate you or you hope that these other systems can actually give you that reflection. But sometimes you actually have to bring it to the table yourself and request it. The other thing that I do and I always tell people to do, which is a gut check on what I like and don't like, because that always evolves. And it requires writing 10 things you absolutely love 
love and in 10 things you just fucking hate. It's got to be fucking hate. Not I hate that. It's like, I despise this. But that can be anything from love working in teams, love leading these types of teams or love working with this type of client. Hate can be anything from, I actually hate not being in charge of my own schedule or I hate not being able to have latitude to solving X problems, whatever that is. And you've got to lay that all out and you've got to do a gut check on everything that you do from volunteer work to your job, to your friendships. Where are these things popping up? Where does my list of love just dominate? Is it at work? Is it my interpersonal? Where does my list of hates just completely show up? Oh, actually this volunteer work, it sucks. It makes me think I'm doing a good thing, but it sucks which means you're probably a better volunteer somewhere else. That introspective work just means that you've got to do the work. That's the part people forget, like the self-reflection work. (laughs) It's not just lay in your bed and look at the ceiling and it all comes to you. You actually have to put in the work and time. So I set aside time each year to really do those things and do that work. And I ask other people to do it too. That's powerful. I love the 10 and 10. I read this on LinkedIn the other day. Question was, what was your favorite hour of the week from last week? What was your favorite hour? Look at your calendar. How much of that hour are you doing? Are you doing that often? Are you doing that very minimally? Is it talking to your team? Is it spending time with your family? Is it working out? Find the best hour and figure out how to replicate that. And it hit me because I was like, man, I'm not doing that hour enough. For me, one of my favorite hours last week was being a one-on-one coaching conversation with somebody on my team. And we weren't talking about sales. We weren't talking about deals or even anything about the company. We were talking about the inner work, the inner game. There was some vulnerability, the kind of conversation where we just like, dropped and it's like, oh, we're getting, we're in it. Kind of like what this conversation is right here. Now I look at my calendar like, okay, how do I find opportunities to do that more or build into my schedule or at least set some time every single week to do that more often with people not even at work? What do you think was special about that conversation? Was it the person, the topic, all the above? What stood out? For me, when you were sharing earlier, I was thinking of, we have these shadows. We have these insecurities, these things we're ashamed about that we really don't want anybody to see. What we end up doing is we put on this projection to try to overcompensate for it. Oh, if I'm really actually nervous and a little bit scared of what's called, I'm actually going to talk really loud and I'm going to puff out my chest and make myself feel really good. And if I'm afraid of rejection from somebody who I'm in a relationship, I'm going to be a dick and I'll break up with them before they can break up with me so I don't get hurt. Whatever it might be, it was in this conversation that we started to be like, I see these things and the image and the feelings that we're trying to portray. I empathize with them. But what's underlying that? And we started to get into like that. Oh, yeah, that kind of hurts. I called somebody out recently. I was like, I think you're a little bit of a people pleaser. By the way, me too. (laughs) But I see that. I see you trying to please people to make them like you because underlying all of that, there's a little bit of the, oh, what if people don't like me? I'm afraid to be alone. Whatever it might be, I don't want people to disagree with me because then they won't like me. Those types of conversations where we get to the underlying root, I'm like, oh, this is the good stuff right here. (laughs) And it matters. It's one of those things where the work that you're talking about, the self-work you're talking about, the teamwork you're talking about, people may ask, well, why does that matter in business? Why does that matter at work? I was one of those people. I don't bring that to work. Why are we crying at work? <laughs> and I don't think that you know you and I are advocating for reckless emotions at work. That understanding of self is important because it helps you understand other people. It's this weird thing that the more you get you, you get others. 
And once you start to get others, you can have influence without authority. You don't need authority to get people to do what you need them to do. That's leadership. If your leadership only depends on authority, you aren't a leader. You're either a bully or a tyrant. (laughs) That's it. You got power, but that's all you have. Leadership is without that, without the authority, without direct power, can you get other people to follow, whether it's their heart or their mind. And the only way you do that is if you understand them, if you see them. And the only way you do that is if you understand yourself and you see yourself. Because if you're not willing to be honest with you, you won't be honest with them. And they'll sniff it out every time. I resonate a lot with what makes you tick. But I think it's important to also let people know that's how good business works. <laughs> mm, I love how you tie that back. Yes. That's good, man. That's really good. I even imagine when you see people too, all of a sudden they can take off this wall, this uniform, and they can just be themselves. And when you're just feeling yourself, like even if I say this, my shoulders start to shake. I just feel looser. I can just show up. Oh, I'm a big call. I don't need to prep so much because I can just trust myself that, hey, I'm already good enough. I already know my stuff. To a point. When you can allow that to come out, you feel more like yourself. All of a sudden, people are like, oh, this person is just very calm and confident in their own body. That makes me actually want to be calm and confident in my own body. I like how this person makes me feel. I trust this person. This person is somebody who I'd want to do business with. And I'm assuming this person, who they represent, what company they represent, also embodies the same type of feeling too, because they're embodying this. And it does impact business incrementally by being more our authentic selves. I want to just give everybody a little peek in terms of what's next for you. You just spent eight years at Microsoft, like we've talked about. You've had an incredible career through leadership. Even this conversation, I'm like, ooh, now I feel it. Now I know why. You're taking a pretty decent, I want to say massive career change, but you're definitely going a different path than you've been on. Would love if you'd be open to kind of sharing what's next portray so people can start to get a bucket of popcorn and follow along for the ride. It's going to be a ride. I'll tell you that. Yes, I'm making a pivot from my corporate tech life and really want to focus the next chapter of my career in the entertainment and media space. And so some friends and I are going to build an entertainment and media group, which if I was going to summarize, is going to own and make IP and then bring that IP to market at its most simplest form. And the idea is to say that For a long time, we've been told that good work and good art and commercial work are opposing forces. That if you want to make really good stuff, you got to be willing to make no money. (laughs) If you want to make really commercial stuff, you got to be willing to make nothing worth watching (laughs) or experiencing. And we've had some exceptions to that. But in a weird way, that's become the rule. And I just fundamentally don't believe that. So what I want to do now, the next hard and complex problems, I want to spend the next decade finding the greatest tastemakers and creators and pairing them up with my team of operators to bring and make good businesses and build an ecosystem in the creator space that is both a good business and brings a lot of value, but also changes and shifts the ambition for what it means to make good work. So starting in theater and live experiences and then eventually into television and film as well, and figuring out how we can bring a new ambition to the work and move away from revivals and sequels and trilogies and all the sort of derivative work we've been seeing a long time that has been told to us uh, is the best formula for commercial success and actually going back to pioneering good work thinking outside the box, and bringing that same sort of why not mentality that I learned for the last eight years to this space and industry. 
And admittedly, I am an outsider. There's tons of things I don't know. There's tons of things I'm going to get wrong. There's going to be mistakes. I'm going to look like an idiot. But at the end of the day, I'm not afraid of that. That's the dangerous part. <laughs> I don't have to be the world's smartest person. I just got to have a little less fear. <laughs> and if we could do that, oh, oh, with enough resources, I think you can figure most things out. The question is, can you, my experience as an operator, the team's experience across both the creative space and business ventures, can we use those backgrounds to be able to make something special? I believe we can. Well, I might as well just say thank you now for what I'm going to be able to enjoy and receive and experience through what you are doing together. That's a big change. Are you excited? What's the top three emotions that you are feeling as you are venturing into this new world? I think the first one is definitely excitement. I mean, I'm excited at the end of the day. And I'm excited not because of the change, the new career, but I'm excited about all the new players and stakeholders and folks I haven't met and problems I don't even know. And things are going to pop up. And honestly, to work with creative people. At the end of the day, I am a creative person that has built a life in corporate America, where I was a bit of an odd person. And I'm returning to my people who are the creative and artist community. But at the same time, I'm not a generative artist anymore. I don't make art in the same way anymore. And that's totally okay. And I love it. I want to be able to empower and enable all the generative artists out there to do great work and focus on the great work. Let me worry about the commercial pieces, right? Like me, we're about the business side in partnership with them. I'm excited for that. I'm a little nervous. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a change. And it is much easier for me to take my career down a ancillary route, one that feels very similar, has a similar path or similar players, is in tech or tech adjacent, has a bit more flair, or is a competitor of Microsoft. Those are the routes that make sense on paper, right? Makes sense. But if my job is to find the hardest and most complex problems, comfort can't come along with that journey. As my mama say, pick a struggle. You can't have both. That's just not going to work. You got to figure out which of these you're really going to lean into. And if I want to lean into that, I've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I've got to more so seek it out while having the discernment to know when you've gone too far. I think that's the other part of this is that you have to also know when you're too far. That's the team building side. So I'm nervous, but what counters those nerves and that little bit of that anxiety is that my job isn't to know everything. It's to be in the right place and find the right people and have access to them and resources to solve the problem. And as long as I'm focused on that, I'm going to be okay. We're going to be okay. The team's going to be okay. And what's more important than myself is the team. I know the best people. I mean, we got the best people. Once you have that, I don't know how nervous you can really be. I don't have to be the smartest person in the room. I just got to know how to find the smartest people. <laughs> and I feel really confident in that. And I think the third one is just simply gratitude. I'm really, really grateful for the last few years. I used to always say I'm a very random person. And a friend finally told me, stop saying that. You're not a random person. These things are building blocks into what may be unconventional, but it is not random. I am grateful for that friend who was in my corner. I'm grateful for the people up until this point who've been in my life helping influence how we got here. I spent the last eight years looking at hundreds of business models for both Microsoft and my thousands of clients I've had in my time. That means I've had pattern recognition of what works and doesn't work across a lot of industries. I can use that and apply that to other areas. I'm just pointing it into a new industry, one in which I've been interested in since I was a young person. That's not random. That just means the time is now and maybe a little sooner than we all thought. Those are probably where I am now mentally. 
Thanks, brother. Thanks for sharing. So honestly, I felt that in your share. I have one more question for you. But before I get to the question, man, I just want to acknowledge you real quick. This is exactly, if not a hell of a lot more of what I was hoping that this conversation would be. So thank you for coming on. And you have a great energy about you that like gets me more energized. I love how you think about things, not just as numbers or mentally, but you're really trying to get to the root of it and inspire people. I want to somehow morph the I do hard shit and solve really hard problems into my why, because I think it's honorable right there. And many people will be impacted by that from you journeying on that yourself. So thank you for the hard work you're doing on behalf of so many, myself very much included. My last question is this. The show is obviously called The Rising Leader Podcast. What do you view as the rising leader coming in the front door? I think the rising leader to me is someone focused on everyone else's success. I really, really deeply believe that that the next set of leaders are going to be ones that are focused outside of themselves. And you see that across the board, right? Whether that's the rising leaders in addressing climate change or the rising leaders in policy, technology, ethics, AI, insert whatever industry you want. The most important quality to me of that set of people, what I would hope to have just an ounce of, is someone who's focused on others, people, places, things, and are thinking about that as they are creating their leadership journey. I believe if you've got that on mind, you'll be all right. The rest will come. A good, a good little bow to put on top of this conversation, man. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for being here. This is truly awesome. And, and to all the people who tuned in, thank you so much for joining the Rising Leader Podcast. Can't wait to speak to you again. And Trey, man, appreciate you, brother. Thanks for listening to the Rising Leader Podcast. Make sure you hit that follow button so you get notified every time a new episode releases. If you know someone who wants to take their lives and their career to the next level, send them this episode so we can all rise together. For more information, check out alluviance.co. We'll see you next time. And in the meantime, keep letting it flow. This episode is brought to you by Alluviance. Alluviance is helping sales professionals, sales leaders, and founders master the craft of sales by transforming the inner game. And in the past 12 months, we've thrown four retreats and impacted over 100 tech sales leaders, founders on not just getting better at the craft, but really working on the inner game, gaining clarity on their vision, and also overcoming what's holding them back. The best part is you'll be doing it in an incredible community of high performers who are also trying to do the exact same thing. Our next immersion is going to be this May 3rd through 5th in the beautiful Austin, Texas. And make sure you check out alluviance.co to apply there. Can't wait to see you.